I came to your church as a single mom of two. There is Chase, my oldest, all of four years old. And then there's my precious Isabel, a beautiful little 15-month-old. My husband left shortly after Isabel was born. He told me he didn't want to be a dad. He had a new girlfriend, and she was fun. They couldn't go out any night. They could go out any night they wanted, and they didn't need to find a babysitter. For a few months, I moved in with my mom. It didn't work out. She drank too much, and she and I fought. I had to get out of there, so I found a place to live and got a job. Still, my life was a mess, and it didn't get any better. Within months, I was struggling to make my rent payments on my little apartment. I quickly fell a couple months behind. The kids needed new shoes. Their dad, my ex, was three months behind on child support. The people at my work were mostly nice, but the job didn't pay well. My mom watched the kids during the week, except when she had too much to drink the night before. It happened far too often. I would be left frantically calling others to find someone to watch my children. Some days I had to stay home because I didn't have childcare. My boss was lenient, but even he said it had to stop. Then on last Friday, I got a note from my landlord. He said he found a new tenant for my apartment, one who would keep up with the rent. My world was falling apart around me. I prayed. I hadn't prayed in a long time. Through my tears, I asked God to help me. I asked him to show me what to do. I didn't know how I could make it another day. The next day, I saw the billboard for your church. I thought it was an answer to my prayers, so I showed up on Sunday. People were nice, but I felt out of place. One older woman told me I should get new shoes for my kids. Another said the kids' coats were not nearly warm enough for such cold weather. It made me want to cry. I, I thought Jesus said to come as you are. I did my best, but I felt judged. I thought about leaving, but that would have been even more awkward. So I dropped Isabel off at the nursery and Chase at Sunday school. The message was positive, but the pastor used some big church words that I didn't understand. After the service ended, people smiled at me and shook my hand. One older gentleman hugged me. It was nice, but a little too friendly. When I picked up my kids, I was told Isabel had a dirty diaper and I hadn't provided any clean ones, so she will still sit in it. I realized in all my rushing around, I had left the diaper bag in the car. I was embarrassed. I rushed out of church. Later that day, I thought about my experience. It wasn't bad. It certainly wasn't great. But I decided I'm never going to return. So if you know Amber, you know that that monologue was not Amber's story. It wasn't even based on a single true story. Actually, it was based on parts of several true stories. And the sad thing is, such stories like that happen far too often in churches all over our country. It's heartbreaking. 
When a person walks through our church doors, we don't know their life story. We don't know if life is going well for them, if they're sinking in the, the pit of despair, or maybe if they're somewhere in the middle. Often we're not even sure how they ended up at church. But we do know that since, they're th- since they are here, God brought them. And so we do what Jesus did. We try to meet them right where they are. We welcome everyone. And that's what we try to do here at Bethesda. And yet even the most welcoming churches, a careless or well-meaning but misguided comment can cause a person to never return. We're to be loving and caring and, and good listeners. The fact of the matter is, is that advice is not needed during a person's first visit to church. And so I think the best thing we can do is we put ourselves into that visitor, that guest position. They might be apprehensive. Maybe it's their first time in a church, or maybe it's their first time in a church in a long time. They don't know where anything is, including the restrooms. They might want to slip in and slip out without drawing too much attention, and yet at the same time, they need to feel welcome. First impressions are so important. That's why at Bethesda here, we have a greeter team. They help make sure those first impressions with people are good. Within the first five minutes of walking through our doors, a person might decide if they are going to return for a second visit or not. It also means that we should look at the appearance of our building through a visitor's eye. We see it every week. Things look normal to us. A person coming in for the first time might see things that you and I don't see. The fact of the matter is it is so easy for a first impression to go south. Every Sunday morning, we pray for those people entering our doors. We do our best, and we ask God to guide our words and to guide our actions. And even then, many visitors, many first-time guests won't return. And that's normal, because people are sometimes looking for something very particular in a church. And that's okay. Mike Shields is our Central District Evangelical Free Church of America superintendent. And that's quite a mouthful, but he's, he's up in Iowa and he's kind of over our region. He shared a true story that happened at a church where he once served. Like the woman that was portrayed by Amber, the woman who visited his church was a single mom. She hoped that, or she worked two jobs. She had kids. She had felt beaten and battered. She hoped coming to church would help her find community. She hoped to find God. And it didn't happen. Mike said instead, a single misguided action resulted in this woman never returning to church. And this is what Mike shared about such such situations. He said the legalism that is prevalent in many churches is life-draining when it should be life-giving. You see, we make up rules that often have nothing to do with Jesus. We expect new people to come into our building and understand our rules and follow those rules. It might include things as to how we dress or what we look like or, or how our kids behave. And when we do that, we're wrong. We need to change. 
And so Mike then continued his story saying, the next Sunday after this woman's visit, I got up in front of our congregation and told her whole story. And from that day on, he said, we made a commitment to be a church that loves God and all people. He said our new phrase of practical ministry became, every person who walks through those doors matters to God, so they had better matter to us. Mike said they repented of their selfishness and charted a new course. He said we would be everyday disciples, loving God and people both boldly and extravagantly. And I think Mike's church's battle cry should be our battle cry here at Bethesda. Every person who walks through our doors matters to God. And so they had better matter to you and I. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you knowing that even on our best days we fail. Sometimes we make choices that are intentional that go against your will. Other times we try to do the right thing and it still gets all messed up. We ask you to forgive us, to restore us, to help us to love you and to help us to love others. You are the life giver. You bring life where death rules. You restore our hearts. You change our churches. You change our hearts. Help us to be willing to be molded by you. May we give our life and our church to you for your purpose and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to begin a, a four-week series titled Life-Giving Churches. And my hope is with the new year that we will renew our focus on being a church that loves God and loves people. I think we'd all admit that Bethesda is a church that's been blessed by God, greatly blessed over the years. And with that blessing, though, also comes a responsibility. We're to be Christ's ambassadors to our community. We are his voice. We are his hands. We are called to do our part in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. In John 10.10, Jesus described that good news. He said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. See, Jesus gives life. He gives us life today and for eternity. And throughout the Gospels, when you read them, when Jesus showed up, amazing things happened. The sick were healed. The blind regained their sight. The marginalized were given hope. The dead were raised. And forgiveness was offered. See, our church is to be a place of life. Our church is to be a place where people come to get recharged after a long week. Church provides the, the conduit for hope. Our church is where you and I serve. It's where we, we grow. Church is to be something that people look forward to coming to each and every week. And, and we know it isn't always that way. A lot of churches struggle. They aren't life-giving churches. Life-giving churches thrive. So the next four weeks, we'll be looking at some of the characteristics of life-giving churches, and they include things like this. Life-giving churches value gospel clarity. Life-giving churches boldly love. Life-giving churches are humble. Life-giving churches are compassionate. 
Bethesda is a life-giving church. But we can certainly do better. And the best place, I think, to start is to be a boldly loving church. But we don't just love, we love boldly. See, to boldly love somebody, that's to be willing to take a risk. You put yourself out there. The love that you offer may not be well-received. It might even be rejected. Guys, both older guys and younger guys up in the choir loft, you know, think about, for the older guys, when you ask your wife out on a date, or younger guys, think about when you ask any girl out on a date. You, you took a risk. Rejection was possible. In some cases, rejection was very likely. But you got up your courage and you went for it. To boldly love is to be committed to the other person. You don't stop loving them even when they disappoint you. If you've been married any length of time, you know marriage involves a commitment. Sometimes your wife makes you crazy. You wonder what in the world is going on in her head. Other times, though, and I've seen this, a wife just rolls her eyes and bites her tongue thinking, my husband must be the biggest knucklehead in the history of mankind. Sometimes she's right. <laughs> Good marriages, though, stay committed through the episodes of knuckleheadism and craziness. And to boldly love is to not judge. You know, it's easy to judge people when we first meet them. And some of you have the gift of discernment. You can pretty much read a person in that first five minutes. And I have to say, years ago, I was pretty good when I was interviewing job applicants. I couldn't always tell who was going to be good in the first five minutes of that interview, but I could almost always tell you who was going to be bad. Of course, like everyone, I've made some mistakes along the way. But for most of us, the problem is we don't have the gift of discernment. It takes us longer to get to know a person. So it's important that we don't make a, a quick judgment. God boldly loves us. And we're to boldly love others. If we hope to be a boldly loving church, we need to see what the Bible says about such love. Now, I, I stand up here this morning, and I want to make a disclaimer. Everything I say to you from here on this morning, y'all have heard many times. You've heard it many times from me. You've heard it from other pastors. We know this stuff. But the problem always is in living it. Now, if we have any hope to boldly love someone else, we must realize that love comes from God. I told you it was going to be basic. The fact is, we just celebrated Christmas. Love came down from heaven in the baby Jesus. Jesus lived, he loved. Then in the greatest act of love ever, Jesus gave his life so that you and I could have life. Abundant life today, as he said, and eternity in heaven. In John 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Jesus loved. He set the example. Jesus loved the 12 disciples who followed him, even Judas, who Jesus knew was going to betray him. And I think we'd all admit these disciples were often goofballs. They, they doubted. 
They were afraid. Sometimes they were overly proud. They got angry without justification. Their faith often was very weak. Their memory was short. They seemed to always forget that Jesus had taken care of them in the past when they faced a new crisis and they didn't think he was going to do it then. And yet, Jesus boldly loved them. You know, a beautiful picture of that love was on display just before Jesus went to the cross and then after his resurrection. Before his crucifixion, the disciple Peter denied knowing, even knowing Jesus three times. He denied his Savior. And and that could have been the end of it. Jesus could have at that moment condemned Peter for eternity. I mean, he denied knowing him. Jesus would have been justified doing that. But he didn't. Instead, he loved. And that same love was on display after the resurrection. The disciples were enjoying a breakfast with the risen Christ, and after they finished eating, Jesus looked at Simon, who was called Peter, the same guy who had denied him, and he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus asked that question three times. And each time, Peter affirmed his love. And the third time Jesus asked, Peter replied, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. But Jesus loved more. Jesus not only forgave Peter, he promoted Peter. Peter would be a leader in the early Christian church. God would use Peter to deliver a message that caused 3,000 people to come to Christ in one day. Think about it. If, If Jesus could love Peter after what Peter did, it isn't that difficult to see that God loves you, is it? I mean, you might think that, you know what, I'm not worthy of his love. The fact is, we aren't. None of us are. But God loves you anyway. And he won't stop loving you. His love is pure, it's unconditional, it's faithful. God's love can overcome anything that you have done in your life. Now that being said, we have to let God love us. We can be so stubborn and so proud You know, we can face a challenge. Maybe it's a health crisis or a financial problem or a broken relationship. And we face that problem, and instead of receiving God's love, we try to fix it ourselves. We have this crazy, ridiculous notion that we are in control. We can take care of things. Now, we have a role to play, but we're not in control. We can eat healthy and exercise I was at the gym yesterday. The gym was packed yesterday. It's kind of amazing. Always in January, the gym's packed. But eating healthy and exercising, that's the smart thing to do. But still, it's no guarantee. I mean, look at all the healthy people who got COVID. My wife, Mary, is a cardiac nurse who has taken care of marathon runners who have had heart attacks. These people were certainly the picture of health, but they still nearly died. Now, of course, I will add something that my wife always says. Their good health was a key to them surviving and a quicker recovery. We can be smart with our money. 
Saving and giving are so important. Maintaining a budget solves so many problems, but saving and budgeting can't protect us. If you're retired and you got a little money in the market, the market could cra- crash. If you're working, you could become disabled and not be able to work. We might get laid off. And before you know it, the bank account is sucked dry. How we treat others affects our relationships with them. And yet we can't control how another person treats us. I mean, this is an important lesson for teenagers on up. We love, and sometimes those we love, they hurt us. They hurt us again and again and again. And I've said this before, it might be time to cut ties. But the point here is instead of trying to to control everything, we do our best and realize the rest is up to God. We let God love us. He will care for us. He is in control. God freely gives his love to you. He gives it to me. But still, you and I, we're called to respond. To fully receive God's love, we have to put our trust in Jesus as our Savior. And that brings us to our second truth about boldly loving. And that is that we are to love God. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And what he's saying there very simply is, love God with everything in you. Love God with everything in your being. That's not easy. None of us does it perfectly. In fact, I would guess that most of us, if we are really honest with ourselves, we do a pretty poor job at loving God. He often isn't our top priority. We don't live the way he calls us to live. We don't worship him in a manner that recognizes that our very next breath depends on him. Now, to love God with everything in us means so many things, but I've got just three things I want you to remember. First one is our love for God is to be all-consuming. Now, I'll take, I'll take this from the perspective of a guy who's been married 37 years. Happily married, I will add. In the early months of dating my wife, Mary, she consumed me. I thought about her all day long. I couldn't wait to see her, to hear her voice, to hold her. I couldn't imagine my life without her. Yep. And then we got married. Don't need to say anymore. Sadly, we may lose some of that all-consuming love for another person because we take our spouse for granted. Guys, your wife is a gift from God. You need to treat her like the blessing that she is. Don't be harsh with her. Give her the grace that Jesus has given you. You know what, similarly though, we take God for granted. We're to love God knowing that we can't live without him. He's the center of our life. An old song that I, I liked used to say, my, and it's talking about a person here, not God, but we can apply it to God. He says, my love for you is so overpowering I'm afraid I will disappear. My love for you is so overpowering I'm afraid I will disappear. See, with God, that means that our life becomes his life living through us. 
In a sense, we disappear. We give ourselves to God. We want to do what God wants us to do. The greatest blessings come from doing God's will. And then that love for God is also built on trust. Let me ask you a real simple question. How can you love someone you don't trust? You can't love someone who constantly lets you down. Because if they truly loved you, they would be there for you. Well, God is always there for us. We might not like what we're going through. God never promised us that it was going to be easy. But he did say that he'd always be with us. He'll get us through the storm. And then third, our love for God is joy-giving. The more we love God, the more joy we have in our life. The more we love God, the more we see him at work in our life. The more we see God at work in our life, the more joy we experience. Jesus told us that we're to love God with everything in us. Then he added that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. In John 13, he added, he said that we are to love one another. And the third part of loving boldly is to love others. Again, you know this. It's nothing new. You've heard it hundreds of times. And again, even though we know it, it's not always easy to live it. Jesus said that it was by our love that people will know we are his disciples. See, if we love people, other people boldly, those people will see something of Jesus in us. And that's the attractive force of the gospel. See, the more you and the more I look like Jesus in the way we talk and the way we act, the more people are going to want to come to know Jesus for themselves. And, and such love for people shows up in our daily living. That's where our love is so desperately needed. You know, we could, we could talk about loving others for days. There's that much to it. But I just want to focus this morning on one specific area where our boldly loving others truly can make a difference. And that is in church on a Sunday morning, especially when that new person walks through our doors. I just want to share with you some great comments that I've heard from people who visited Bethesda and came back. One person said, I wasn't judged on my appearance. I was accepted for who I am. Another said, Bethesda is so friendly. It's like family. One person said, I came to VBS with my daughter. Carolyn let me volunteer in my daughter's room, and then she invited my kids to King's Kids Camp. Yet another person said, someone invited me when I came that morning to sit with them. I had an instant connection. Here's an important one. They got to know my name. I felt like they really wanted me here. It felt like home. I heard recently one person that visited said, I love the mix of tradition and more contemporary styles of worship. And the last one I've got for you is probably the best one. It was clear to me that these people loved Jesus. That ought to be clear to anybody who walks in our door. 
These are things people have said. These are things that this church has done. So with God's help, we can continue to do this and even get better at doing it. The fact is, is that people need Jesus. They want community. People long for a place to belong. And so to boldly love is to be committed to everyone that's here on a Sunday morning, whether they've been here 60 years or six minutes. To boldly love is to take a a risk in reaching out to others. They might not come back. And to boldly love is to not be judgmental. Such love makes a difference. God will use us. He'll use this church to give life. Let me quote our battle cry again. Every person who walks through our doors matters to God. So they had better matter to us.